0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we chatted about the code of ancient Japan, discussed the growing crisis in Venezuela, and learned about a pet coke problem on our doorstep. All this plus size matters in the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for February 1st, 2019. I-94 chatted with author Shawn Michael Wilson, who recently released a graphic novel retelling the 19th century classic Bushido. Wilson discussed the soul of Japan, the impact Nitobi Inazo's work had on the nation, and why a graphic novel is a perfect medium to bring this classic to a new audience. I-94, Lumpen's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. 1. Bushido as an ethical system Chivalry is a flower just as indigenous to Japan as its emblem, the cherry blossom. It is not a dried-up specimen like some antique virtue preserved in a museum to our history. It is a living object of power and beauty among us, and if it can't be physically seen, it still scents the moral atmosphere and makes us aware that we are still under its potent spell. The conditions of society that brought it forth and nourished it have long disappeared, but just as far-off stars still continue to shed their rays upon us, so the light of chivalry, which was a child of feudalism, still illuminates our moral path about the time that our feudalism was in its last days, Karl Marx, writing his Capital, called the attention of his readers to the advantage of studying the social and political institutions of feudalism in Japan, which he considered the only living form of it left in the world. I would likewise invite the Western historical and ethical student to the study of chivalry in present-day Japan. The Japanese word, which I have roughly rendered chivalry, is, in the original, more expressive than horsemanship. Bushido means literally, military knight ways, the ways that fighting nobles should observe in their daily life as well as in their work, in a word, the precepts of knighthood. The use of the original term is also advisable for the reason that the teaching is so unique, resulting in a cast of mind and character so peculiar, so local to Japan, that some words have a resonance so expressive of national characteristics that the best of translators can do them little justice. Bushido is the code of moral principles that the knights were instructed to observe. It is not a written code. At best, it consists of a few maxims handed down from mouth to mouth or from the pen of some well-known warrior or savant. More frequently, it is a code unuttered and unwritten, possessing all the more powerful force of practical deed and of law written on the fleshly tablets of the heart. It was founded not on the creation of one mind or on the life of a single person. It was an organic growth of centuries. It perhaps fills the same position in the history of ethics that the English Constitution does in political history, yet it has nothing to compare with the Magna Carta or habeas corpus. True, early in the 17th century, military statutes were issued, but the 13 short articles were concerned mostly with marriages, castles, leagues, etc. Moral teaching was hardly touched upon. We can't point out any definite time and place and say, Here is the beginning of Bushido. But, as it came to full fruition in the feudal age, its origin may be identified with that time. But feudalism itself had many threads, and Bushido shares its intricate nature. In England, feudalism probably dates from the Norman conquest of the 11th century. In Japan, its rise was simultaneous with the ascendancy of Yoritomo in the 12th century. However, just as we find elements of feudalism far before William the Conqueror, The germs of feudalism in Japan also existed long before this. In Japan, as in Europe, after feudalism was formally established, a professional class of warriors came into prominence. These were known as samurai, meaning guards or attendants, like the old English knight, connect, knight. A Cinco-Japanese word, buki, or bushi, fighting knights, was also in common use. They must originally have been a rough breed who made fighting their vocation. This class was recruited during a long period of constant warfare from the manliest and the most adventurous. As the process of elimination went on, the timid and the feeble were sorted out, and only, quote, a rude race, all masculine, with brutish strength, in Emerson's phrase, survived to form families of samurai. But as their degree of honor, privilege, and responsibility increased, they felt the need for a common standard of behavior, especially since they belonged to different clans. Just as physicians limit competition among themselves by professional courtesy, just as lawyers sit in courts of honor, so must warriors possess some resort for final judgment on their misdemeanors. Perhaps we see the germ of morality and military virtues here? We smile, as if we have outgrown it, at the boyish desire of Tom Brown, who aimed, quote, to leave behind him the name of a fellow who never bullied a little boy or turned his back on a big one. Childhood begins life with these notions and so does knighthood, but as life grows larger and its relations many-sided, the early faith seeks support from a higher authority and more rational sources of justification and development. If military interests had operated alone, without higher moral support, the ideal of knights and samurai would have fallen far short of
1: chivalry. And that was an excerpt from Sean Michael Wilson's adaptation of Bushido: the Code of the Samurai. Today, our uh, readings are done by um, Shanna Van Volt and, of course, music from Ben Lamar Gay.
2: Sean, we talked a little earlier about uh, it wasn't so much a question of whether or not uh, Nitobe's book could be adapted, but the best way to do it. And uh, I wondered if you could talk about what you had to leave out or what was difficult to include in your adaptation.
3: Well, the first, um, the first thing about this, and it's not an easy thing for any writer, is that if you're taking something which is, in this case, 120 years old, almost, or 500 years, or 1,000 years old, then the first thing is that the publisher normally wants the words to be modernised, or the kind of words which we consider to be archaic now to be uh, changed into more modern versions. And um, first of all, I I mean, that's a kind of debatable point in itself already and not one that I'm really keen on because I'm keen on kind of uh, showing the original warts and all and keeping it as close as possible to the authentic original text. But I kind of understand that uh, most publishers think that that's going to put readers off. Um, and maybe especially if it's a, if it's very different from modern American English, and so the kind of fir- that's the kind of first thing to think about is uh, to modernise the language without kind of losing the essence of what the original person was was trying to get. And of course, that's not uh, necessarily an easy thing to do. And that's just the text. I haven't even mentioned the art yet.
2: Well, I know Nitobe studied in the West. Did he do his own, own translation, or did someone, did a uh, British or American writer translate
3: the original? Well, I believe that he wrote it um, himself, uh, directly in English. Although presumably someone uh, helped him with it, because uh, he studied in he studied in America, um, in a couple of different places in America. In uh, I think in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, where was At Baltimore. So uh, it seems like his English was good. Mm -hmm. But I know that someone helped him with it. Mm -hmm.
0: Nancy Clem spoke to Olga Bautista, a member of the Southeast Side Coalition, to ban pet coke. Bautista led the fight to address the pressing environmental issues in the 10th Ward, and she discussed the looming threat of neurotoxic manganese pollution on the Southeast Side. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Sunday of the month at 5 p.m.
4: So I wanted to just address the fact, like, I am really talking to... uh, a heavyweight activist here in Chicago, everybody. And um, when I was talking to Olga a week or so ago, um, (laughs) she kept on referring to her work primarily around advocacy. But frankly, Olga, I feel like the energy you embody and apply to your work um, easily overwhelms this term, advocacy. And I was wondering, did you have another term for your work that is more worthy because um, I've been trying to think of one since we talked.
5: <laughs> well, I, I, um, I consider myself a revolutionary. <laughs> okay. The work um, that I do, um, you know, is um, all kinds of, of words and you know, all kinds of things. So um, I do activism and advocacy, but I'm also talking about root causes to these mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I think... You know because of Bernie, because um you know the, the dsa has grown so much like you know dirty words like socialism communism are not so dirty anymore so i feel a little safer um talking about you know revolutionary politics in my work as well um but i do consider myself an eco-socialist i think that in order for the planet to survive um, all of this uh trauma that has that it has um gone through because of capitalism because of you know the, the Industrial revolution um, I don't think that there's I think I think it's important to, to say like that something big has to change um, something huge um, so that this planet actually survives so and in the very like hyper local um, you know uh, uh, you know, where I live, like in a sense, very hypothetical sense, like I think that's the work that I'm doing is um, making those cracks a little wider and exposing, you know, the political system that we live in. And um, at the end of the day, that's, um, that's why I'm in this work. And I think um, it has a lot to do with the success of the work because, um, you know, we've been able to articulate very clearly, like, who are our targets and how these policies and
4: the things that they support um, are hurting us here, but also, you know, the the planet. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you brought in the, you know, you call yourself an eco-socialist because I'm going to be talking about that a little bit later with you, Um, but I really uh, appreciate you coming up with a different term for yourself because advocacy just feels like... um, Almost like a cheerleading team, and I think it. Uh, I think what your work is doing is, um, like you said, getting at the roots of things. And I, I really want to. I've been wondering this for a while, and I feel like now that I have you trapped on the phone, I can ask you. Um, how did you? Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> how did you? Build your voice to what it is today. Well, what was the oh, journey?
5: Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, this starts before I was even born.
4: Okay. Um, okay.
5: My, my <laughs> parents um, are both from Mexico. My mom is from Jalisco, and my dad is from Nayarit. And they lived and grew up in extreme poverty. My mom's father left um, my grandmother um, while she was pregnant with her 10th tenth, tenth child, and my dad um, was 15 when he left his family of um, 13 kids because there wasn't enough food for him, and he went to go try to make a, a living on his own. And uh, growing up, hearing the stories of their, like, at such a tender young age of having to be, um, um you know, fending for themselves and and survive uh, some very traumatic things. Um, I um, grew up, you know, hearing these stories and so the things that I have done in my life just don't even feel as scary or hard (laughs) as the things that my parents did to get um, to the United States. Um, Both of them came to Chicago specifically because even in their poor, little, dusty towns in Mexico, the news traveled that there was work and steel mills in the Calumet region, and they made their way up here. But back then, it was a lot easier to cross the border. Like, it didn't, I mean, you could just say, I'm going into work, you know, and there was a little paperwork you had to do, somebody had to sponsor you, you know, a cousin, a relative. and it wasn't very difficult and then once my parents were here um they they became um uh, legal residents through the amnesty in the 80s and are both now uh blood citizens and are naturalized citizens and are um are also voters <laughs> so i think that's important um but you know that that's um that's how i i think that i um was brave and did take risks because I, I knew that in, in order for us to survive, you have to call out things that are um, hurting us, and then you have to fashion a plan to overcome them and challenge, um, you know, your situation and the, 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 anybody who's um, involved in, in keeping you in a situation that is harmful um and so i feel like you know i was i was always in trouble growing up (laughs) because whenever i heard a rule that i felt was unfair i wanted to know why that rule existed (laughs) like it seems unfair to have to walk in a single file line and for girls to go to the bathroom um, at only a certain time (laughs) in school and like Boys to go, you know. All these things just seemed like very unnatural, and apparently, I wanted to understand why. (laughs) So, um, I was a real pain in the butt to um, my teachers growing up, (laughs) and uh, a little bit to my parents too, because (laughs) um, I wanted to always, um, you know, figure out like how to do things better, you know.
4: I mean, but you always do it with a um, a smile. I mean, that's what's that's what's amazing about <laughs> <by> you. <laughs> um, so uh, challenge with a smile. Um. Yeah. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, I mean, that also has to do with the upbringing, right? Because right. you know, my growing up as a Latina, like we had to. Um, my mom and you know, like part of the culture was um, to be like a caring, nurturing, like like, like servicing people, and, like, you know, um, it was um, some, something that, that, you know, like, I know that I, I push myself to do it, and sometimes I feel like it's unfair. Like, I don't want to be nice, for example. <laughs> but um, that's part of, like, being Latina, you know, is, like, you have to uh, be sweet and, you know, have, you know, good manners, and mm-hmm. um, so As you, it's always been... Yeah. As you press the <laughs> knife
4: knife to their throat, yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes, Chuck Mertz discussed the growing crisis in Venezuela and how leftists see an imperial hand behind the coup. Jorge Martin discusses the history of colonization in the nation and why even those skeptical of Nicolas Maduro's regime hesitate to embrace the USA. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
6: Um, welcome back to This is Hell, Jorge.
7: Oh, hi, yes. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you again.
6: Yeah, it's great to have you on. You know, whenever we have someone on to talk about Venezuela... Dating back to our first conversations on on the show back in 1998 or 1999, we get emails or direct messages claiming we're having on Chavez or Maduro supporters, despite every guest that we've ever had on pointing out the shortcomings of both Chavez and Maduro. So... Why don't you support Maduro? Because we have a troll who listens to our show, and he insists that what you're writing is is nothing more than uh, apologies for the Maduro administration. So what don't you support about the Maduro presidency?
7: Well, let me just first say that I, I'm a big fan of uh, the late President uh, Chavez, many of his policies were really very good. I, I will say that probably he didn't go far far enough, but I mean he, he used the oil wealth of the country to invest in uh, free health care for all, free education for all, uh, housing for those in need, which are things that many many of your listeners in in the United States will, will probably relate to. But yes, as you as you say, I'm not I'm not a supporter of the policies of uh, the Maduro government. And uh, I'm not a supporter of his uh, government. And in fact, if, if you remember when we spoke last uh, year at the time of the elections, I, uh, I said that uh, I, I wouldn't call for a vote for Maduro in those elections. But, but in reality, what we're talking here about is, is something completely different. Maduro has been elected by the Venezuelan uh, people in elections. It took place in May last year. And now what we're witnessing is an attempt by the Trump administration to remove uh, this president in another country. I mean, this, this is in the United States where there's a big hoo ha about uh, Russian intervention in the U.S. elections, Russian meddling and this and that. But then you turn around and, uh, and Mike Pompeo has just yesterday appointed Elliot Abrams, who's the person who gave the nod to the coup in Venezuela in 2002, Someone who was uh, indicted, who was actually charged for lying to Congress about the Iran Contra scandal, who has a long history of uh, supporting coups, death squads in Central America under the Reagan administration. He's just been appointed the person in charge uh, of coordinating the US efforts to, quote, unquote, restore democracy in Venezuela. So I think that this is the most important thing. We, we cannot uh, be in favor of that. Uh, in Venezuela, there are many problems, but I'd say the, the problems of Venezuelan people should be resolved by the Venezuelan people themselves. It is, it is not for, the, for Washington to decide who's going to be the president of the of the country. And yes, the, the reason why I do not support the policies of the Maduro government is because I think that these policies do not advance the cause of the Bolivarian revolution. Uh, On the contrary, he has been pursuing a policy for three or four years, which mainly consists in making appeals to the opposition to negotiate, making concessions to the bankers and the capitalists, the private uh, industry, Uh, concessions which never lead to anything. Uh, the, The private sector continues to sabotage the economy to boycott uh, investment uh, and breaks every single agreement made at these negotiating tables.
6: How much have those concessions been Maduro's, and then by, you know, extent, uh, Venezuela's downfall? How much has his attempts at bipartisanship, at trying to find common ground with the opposition, how much has that been the mistake that he has made, the biggest mistake that he has made? Mm-hmm.
7: Yeah, I think there are three or four perhaps different factors which have led to the current uh, very serious economic crisis in Venezuela. We're talking about a collapse of GDP of over 50% in the last four years. Uh, We're talking about hyperinflation and so on. I think the first the trigger for this uh, economic collapse was the very steep fall in oil prices around 2014, when and oil went down from over 100 dollars a barrel to 27? Now oil prices have now recovered a little bit, but at that time, that meant that the government was starved of funds, of cash, uh, and couldn't maintain its uh, investment in social uh, spending and in uh, maintenance of the oil industry itself. So what the government started doing at that time was uh, all payment of the foreign debt. What the government started doing at that time was to print money. Uh, And this is one of the causes that then unleashed this massive hyperinflation that we see. Uh, Additional to that is obviously U.S. sanctions. Many people don't realize that there are severe U.S. economic sanctions on uh, Venezuela. They started in uh, 2015 with an executive order by President Obama. They've been reinforced by President Trump, uh, particularly last year, when uh, he issued orders banning the renegotiation or rescheduling of foreign debt by Venezuela, Uh, and it's also banned uh, U.S. companies from uh, trading directly with Venezuelan state companies or state institutions which really damages the the ability of the Venezuelan government to, say, import food or import uh, medicines or basically to obtain funds from the sale of oil and and so on. We just heard uh, yesterday that the U.S. lobbied the Bank of England in in the U.K. to withhold $1.2 billion worth of gold that Venezuela has, in uh, the vaults of the Bank of England, part of its uh, of its gold reserves. Venezuela wanted to get this gold back so so it can survive economically, and uh, the United States prevented the Bank of England from releasing this money. So, of course, economic sanctions and uh, economic sabotage on the part of uh, capitalists in Venezuela have seriously aggravated uh, the situation they're not perhaps the main cause, but they have made the situation much, much worse, and and they basically uh, unmask this lie that uh, the concerns of the U.S. in Venezuela are humanitarian concerns. But finally, I will say that probably the, the main underlying cause for the economic problems in Venezuela is the fact that uh, the, the Chavez and the Maduro governments attempted to regulate capitalism. They introduced foreign exchange controls, uh, price controls. These are defensive mechanisms against uh, a plight of capital, against uh, uh, induced inflation. But they never went all the way. I mean, in a country, you can have either a free market economy, which is never very free, but it's a free market capitalist economy, which benefits the capitalist. Or you can have a planned state-owned uh, economy, where you, where you democratically plan the resources of the country in the benefit of the majority. If you attempt to do something which is halfway, you end up with the with worst of, of both worlds. You, you cannot plan the economy, but at the same time, you're faced with the sabotage by the capitalists. And I think that this is the, perhaps the underlining reason for the problems Venezuela is facing, is that the, 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 they made half a revolution instead of, of going all the way
8: size matters size matters with Kyle Kowski. It's that time of year again you know it's springtime in Bridgeport when your stolen patio furniture starts appearing on Craigslist and to help me celebrate is Todd Slobino former overlord of Undertown What's up Kyle Well everyone wants to know what you've been up to since you lost the election in Undertown At first, I was scared. Then Donald Trump became president of the American Surface, And I realized a guy like me can actually make something of himself. And now you believe Bridgeport is the community of the future? Absolutely. But uh, do you got a grudge against Undertown and the overlord Gary Indiana Jones? Of course. I was robbed fair and square. Everyone knows it. Guy's a two-faced sperm. Is there anything you'd like to tell the people of Undertown if you don't like it, you have the power to change it. Speaking of which, what are the odds I can get you to join forces with me and take back Undertown? I got a great business venture going. Yeah, but it would really help us if you joined. Mm. Well, on one condition. What's that? You guys got to produce a radio commercial for my new venture. Oh, what's that? Bridgeport Alley zipline Awesome can I give it a try? I wait oh yeah that's, we're that's on right. a we're on a church okay, rooftop now. in Bridgeport this and I'm about to I'll go ziplining through one of Bridgeport's oldest right. alleyways. Uh, let's make sure your helmet is on the right way. Safety is on my list of concerns. <laughs> I'm shocked it made it. Todd this is a genius business what This has got to be the best way to see Bridgeport what inspired you to start this business I spent my entire life in Undertown. So when I came up top, I realized I was not scared of heights. Not even a little? Nope. My brain has no way of processing how high up we are. This is dangerous. Is it? I have no if, idea. If your zipline fails, Kyle's going to fall to his death. We're only like six stories up. Yeah, that'll do it. The wire's safe. It's anchored to a dumpster a few buildings away. So where did you get this wire from? Found it on a spool. Is this high-tension wire? Yeah. Stay perfectly safe for zip lining, I'll be fine. All right, let's so, uh, hop in the cart. Kyle, don't get in that. You can trust me. It's a shopping cart. You're the one who wears glasses. God, <laughs> chill, it's safe. Don't worry. I'm going to go with Whatever. it. Whatever. All right, take the recorder. D- d- ready, Kyle? Yeah, wait, is there a weight limit or anything I should be... Kn- I don't know. Uh, how much do shopping carts weigh? Well, awesome! I'm- I'm- is this too fast? Pretty- Are you new to Bridgeport? Do you want to see the sights? Now you can get high. Above it all and see it all. With Bridgeport Alley zip Lines. Fly through the alleyways of Bridgeport and experience the community of the future. Bridgeport Alley zip Lines. This is not a real commercial. Please do not contact WLPN about this commercial. Times are definitely tough when even the Bridgeport tourism is shady and and probably not safe. I was lucky to get out of that garbage can alive. (laughs) I tell you what. Anyways, back to the stuff.
1: This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump loses Bigley, caving on the shutdown, Trump's base goes ballistic, Roger Stone is arrested and indicted as Mueller tightens his noose, Stephen Mnuchin is investigated after a suspicious sanctions deal, and Wilbur Ross thinks workers should just take out payday loans. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 735, January 24th, the Senate failed to pass either of two competing proposals to reopen the government. The two votes were the first the Senate had taken to reopen the government since the shutdown began on December 22nd. Several Republicans broke ranks to support a Democratic proposal in a sign of how deeply troubled individual members of the Republican Party are by the shutdown. Mitch McConnell was confronted by individual Republican senators who blamed him publicly for the shutdown. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said he did not quite understand why unpaid federal workers are going to food banks. Ross said federal workers instead should take out low-interest loans from banks and credit unions to cover their bills. Chuck Schumer called Ross's comments unreal. It is worth noting that a loan service partially owned by Ross is charging federal workers 9% interest on loans. Trump will not deliver his State of the Union address. Nancy Pelosi said she would not pass a concurrent resolution authorizing the president's State of the Union address in a House chamber until the government has reopened. Trump will also not deliver a speech in an alternate venue as TV networks signaled they would not carry it live. Trump's last address to the nation drew poor ratings and was widely panned. The House Oversight Committee is launching an investigation into how Jared Kushner got a security clearance. reported report in the New York Times said that Kushner got his clearance over strenuous objections that he had been targeted for manipulation by foreign governments. The Senate Intelligence Committee issued a subpoena for Michael Cohen to testify. That move came one day after Cohen backed out of a scheduled House appearance, citing threats to his family from Trump and Trump's associates. Cohen's lawyer, Lanny Davis, said his client will honor the subpoena. Trump subsequently called Cohen a bad lawyer on Twitter in response to that news. And Trump is reportedly furious with alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani after Giuliani said Trump had been involved in discussions to build in Moscow through the end of the 2016 presidential campaign. Trump believes that Giuliani has changed the headlines for the worse. Ivanka and Jared Kushner are urging Trump to fire Giuliani before it's too late. Giuliani has told people privately he hates the job, which he has reportedly been doing for free. Day 736, January 25th. In a humiliating climb down, Trump signed a deal to reopen the government for three weeks without border wall funding. The deal was the same the Democrats had offered 35 days ago. In a rambling address, Trump said he was very proud to end the shutdown. Trump then said there could be another government shutdown or he could declare a national emergency if a fair deal doesn't emerge, saying, I have a very powerful alternative, but I didn't want to use it at this time. Trump said federal workers should receive their back pay immediately or as soon as feasible. After his announcement, Pelosi said Trump would not deliver his State of the Union address. The move came after a soft strike by TSA and FAA employees at New York airports shut down traffic in LaGuardia. 15,000 IRS workers also refused to report to work. Following Trump's statement, notable conservatives lit into him with Ann Coulter tweeting he was now the biggest wimp to occupy the White House since George Herbert Walker Bush. The Daily Caller, Drudge Report and Breitbart all ran mocking headlines. Longtime Trump adviser Roger Stone was arrested in a dawn raid by the FBI after a grand jury handed down an indictment on seven felony counts. The Stone arrest was yet another move by Mueller to tie the actions of Trump's associates to him. Stone is charged with obstruction, lying to Congress, witness tampering as part of Mueller's probe. Flashing two Nixonian V signs as he was hauled away by the FBI, Stone would later be released on a quarter million dollars bail. The indictment said that Stone told, quote, a senior Trump campaign official that he had information that WikiLeaks would release documents that could hurt the Clinton campaign. That senior Trump campaign official asked what other damaging information WikiLeaks had. Then a high-ranking Trump campaign official asked Stone about future releases by WikiLeaks. Stone replied that WikiLeaks would re- release a load every week going forward. The senior Trump campaign official has not been ID. would Bloomberg is reporting that Stephen Bannon is the high-ranking Trump campaign official named in the indictment. Stone was also accused of intimidating radio host Randy Credico, who was in contact with WikiLeaks head Julian Assange in 2016. Stone allegedly coached Credico to do a Frank Pentangeli before the House Select Committee on Intelligence, Pentangeli being a character in The Godfather Part 2 who lies to Congress as part of a conspiracy to protect a mob boss. After Credico refused, Stone threatened him and his pet in a series of text messages saying he would quote, take that dog away and then adding later, I am so ready, let's get it on, prepare to die. Stone later went on Fox News and told host Tucker Carlson, I will not bear false witness against the president. Stone then said he would, however, testify before Mueller and that Trump had not dangled the offer of a pardon in front of him. The Stone arrest sent the Trump team into a panic. Sarah Huckabee Sanders claimed on CNN that Stone's arrest, quote, had nothing to do with the president and certainly nothing to do with the White House. Trump tweeted, greatest witch hunt in the history of our country, no collusion. Meanwhile, the EPA has slashed civil penalties for polluters by 85% under Trump. Civil fines had averaged more than $500 million a year over the past two decades. Last year's total was just $72 million. Day 737, January 26th. Trump is considering invoking emergency powers to build his wall on the Mexico border without congressional approval. Trump has repeatedly claimed falsely that the cost of illegal immigration is more than $200 billion a year. Trump spent Saturday tweeting, quote, we are not even into February and the cost of illegal immigration so far this year is $18,959,495,168. The cost Friday was $603,331,392. Trump also claimed there are at least $25 million illegal aliens in the USA. All these numbers are simply fictitious. A dozen employees at Trump National Golf Club in Westchester County, New York were fired because they're undocumented immigrants, according to interviews with the workers and their attorney. The fired workers are from Latin America. Trump employees previously helped these workers gain false documents. Many of the employees have worked at the club for over a decade. The Telegraph of London agreed to pay Melania Trump substantial damages after running an article that, in their words, included a number of false statements and should have been published. The mystery of Melania, featured on the cover of its January 19th edition of the magazine, made erroneous claims about her family and her career. Mick Mulvaney tried to claim that Trump didn't cave in a series of TV appearances that were knocked back even on friendly outlets. Fox asked why Trump had waved the white flag. Another outlet said that Trump preferred caves to walls on their Chiron. And The Hill is reporting that Hillary Clinton isn't, quote, closing the doors to the idea of running in 2020. Clinton told people as recently as this week she would like to be president. Day 738, January 27th. Trump lifted sanctions on three companies, including the aluminium giant Rusal, who has been linked to Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. That move came over the objections of Congress. Deripaska has been a leading figure in the Russian investigation and been called the missing link in that investigation as well. Trump's shutdown cost the economy $11 billion, with an estimated $3 billion in economic activity permanently lost. The CBO projected economic growth will slow this year to 2.3%, compared with 3.1% last year. The White House criticized the CBO's numbers, which have been verified by outside economists. Trump had demanded and did not get $5.7 billion for his wall. Trump also said he won't intervene with the Justice Department regarding the release of Mueller's report. Quote, they'll have to make their decision within the Justice Department, but I could have taken a much different stance, I could have gotten involved in this, I could have terminated everything, I could have ended everything. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz tweeted that he is seriously thinking of running for president as an independent. The billionaire's announcement was widely criticized. Democrats immediately called Schultz a spoiler who would ensure Trump gets reelected. Michael Bloomberg warned there is no way an independent presidential candidate can win and would also only ensure Trump's re-election. Trump tweeted that Schultz doesn't have the guts to be president. Trump endorsed legislation that would put Bible literacy classes into public schools, calling it a great idea. The great idea is also illegal, as it would violate the Church-State Separation Clause and discriminate against students who are not Christian. And some months ago, Mike Pompeo floated that he wanted to change the Department of State to the Department of Swagger. He helpfully included an updated seal on Instagram. Most thought it was an attempt at lame humor, but Pompeo is apparently serious and he has instructed aides to make the change. Day 739, January 28th. American and Taliban officials have agreed in principle to the framework of a peace deal. The USA has been involved in a lengthy Afghani war stretching nearly 18 years. The deal could lead to a full pullout of American troops in return for a ceasefire and Taliban talks with the Afghan government. According to Chris Christie's forthcoming book, Let Me Finish, Trump and Jared Kushner thought that firing Michael Flynn would, quote, end the Russia thing. Christie said that Trump told him, this Russia thing is all over now because I fired Flynn. Flynn met with the Russians. That was the problem. I fired Flynn. It's over. Kushner said, that's right, firing Flynn ends the whole Russia thing. Christie was nonplussed at the exchange. The Trump team, of course, had over 100 documented contacts with Russia. Trump also blamed the failure to fund a border wall on former House Speaker Paul Ryan. Trump claimed Ryan told him he would get the funds after he agreed not to veto last year's omnibus spending bill. And then he went lame duck. Ryan of course suddenly retired last year. Nancy Pelosi invited Trump to give the State of the Union address on February 5th. Pelosi had previously rescinded Trump's invitation until the government shutdown ended day 740 january 29th the trump administration sanctioned venezuela's state-owned energy company john bolton said the actions will block seven billion dollars in assets and cost the country 11 billion dollars all property of venezuela's pdvsa within u.s jurisdiction will be blocked from doing business and all u.s citizens are prohibited with trading with the company the sanctions came after the u.s and many other countries said they would no longer recognize Nicolas maduro as president proclaiming opposition leader juan godado as the rightful interim president of venezuela Bolton also disclosed what appeared to be confidential notes that included plans to send 5,000 U.S. troops to Colombia. Bolton held the notepad against his chest with the notes facing outward during the White House briefing. Roger Stone pled not guilty to charges of obstruction of justice, making false statements, and witness tampering. Stone's indictment alleges he tried to persuade another witness in the Mueller probe to lie. Stone claims he had no inside connection to WikiLeaks or that he was part of a conspiracy to help manipulate the election in Trump's favor. The Senate Judiciary Committee delayed a vote on William Barr's nomination for attorney general after Barr refused to provide a firm guarantee. He would release Mueller's report to Congress and the public. And Trump called climate change a hoax, tweeting for global warming to come back fast as the polar vortex hit the Midwest. Trump tweeted, what the hell is going on with global whamming, misspelling warming day 741 january 30th trump said the u.s intelligence community are being extremely passive and naive and need to go back to school because they are wrong after the heads of the nsa and cia testified before congress and directly contradicted trump on iran north korea syria and isis interestingly trump made no mention of russia which nsa head dan coates said would again attempt to interfere in the 2020 elections Speaking of Russia, the Financial Times reports that Trump met Putin at the G20 summit without a translator, note taker or U.S. staff member present. Melania Trump, however, was there. There is no record of what Trump and Putin discussed and the White House had not previously disclosed Trump met Putin without any staffers present. In addition, it was revealed that Trump Jr. met with a firm that wargamed how a foreign government could meddle in the United States political process. Trump Jr. met with WikiStrat founder Joel Zamel to discuss simulations the firm conducted in 2015 about how illicit efforts could shape American politics. A separate plan was then wargamed by the Psy Group, which Zamel owns in 2016. The plan wargamed by Psy was enacted. Zamel and the Psy Group are now being questioned by Robert Mueller's team. And Russian hackers leaked more than 1,000 files the special counsel's office had shared with Concord management. The files appear to have been uploaded to a file-sharing site and a pro-Russian Twitter account used the information as part of a disinformation campaign to discredit the Mueller investigation. Day 742, January 31st federal immigration officials are force-feeding six immigrants who are on a hunger strike. 11 detainees in an El Paso Texas facility have been on a hunger strike for over a month. ICE says nearly 30 detainees from Indian Cuba have refused to eat. The hunger strike began a protest of verbal abuse and threats from the guards. However a federal judge authorized the force-feeding of some detainees in mid-January. The six are now being fed by nasal tube. The ACLU says their condition is deteriorating. California representative Jackie Spire opened a formal investigation saying that Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin's decision to lift sanctions on a Russian oligarch was a conflict of interest. A major investor in Oleg Deripaska's aluminum company, Rusol, is Len Blavatnik. Blavatnik is a major Republican National Committee donor. Mnuchin served as the finance chairman on the RNC. Mnuchin also apparently sold a stake in a company known as RPDE, Rat Pack Dune Entertainment, to Blavatnik. The Treasury pushed back against the letter claiming Mnuchin and sold stake in RPDE to a third party unrelated to Blavatinec. The Bureau of Land Management is moving ahead with the sale of oil and gas leases that include land near sacred Native American sites. Despite the government shutdown, BLM officials continue to push for drilling permit reviews and energy leases. Chris Christie unleashed a strikingly personal attack on Jared Kushner's father. When asked why he prosecuted the elder Kushner, Christie replied Mr. Kushner pled guilty, he admitted the crimes. If a guy hires a prostitute to seduce his brother-in-law, videotapes it, then sends the videotape to his sister in an attempt to intimidate her from testifying before a grand jury, do I really need any more justification? It's one of the most loathsome, disgusting crimes that I prosecuted when I was U.S. Attorney and I was U.S. Attorney in New Jersey. The Pentagon sent several thousand additional troops to the southern border. DHS officials asked for more troops to help put up concertina wire and conduct border surveillance operations. Roughly 2,300 active duty troops are currently deployed there. Mitch McConnell called a bill that would make Election Day a federal holiday a power grab by Democrats. The bill would prohibit the purging of voter rolls, would require presidential and vice presidential candidates to release their tax returns and create a matching system for small dollar donations. Most damaging Republicans, however, it would also form an independent nonpartisan commission for redistricting at the local level. Republicans have used gerrymandering at the state level to lock Democrats out. And let's have a quick recap. With Roger Stone's indictment this week, Trump's former campaign chairman, his deputy campaign manager, his former national security adviser, his personal lawyer, and a campaign foreign policy adviser have all been accused of lying to investigators about links between Trump and Russia. Trump and his circle of aides made at least 101 documented contacts with Russian nationals or Russian intelligence agents during the 2016 campaign. Fourteen members of Trump's inner circle, including his children, had contact with the Russians. of voters gave Trump a failing grade for his first two years as president. 10% gave Trump a D. 13% gave him a C. Trump himself gave him an A+. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders said God wanted Donald Trump to become president, and that's why he's here. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Bad at Sports chatted with Ponchili Creacion, object makers and reality hackers from Puerto Rico. The artists discuss their new performance, The Beginning of Nothing, at Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, the devastation on the island in the wake of Hurricane Maria, and the limits of art and performance on everyday life. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m.
2: We are joined in the studio on this slushy morning uh, by a collective, a pretty interesting collective. Who, who do we have here? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome, Ponzili Creción.
9: About bad at sports um hi. hi i'm pablo i'm efrain really <laughs> happy to be here um where well should we just
0: get into it you're here for the international puppetry festival
9: yeah um we're here uh presenting uh one of our newest performance called the beginning of nothing uh we've been invited by the by the chicago puppetry international festival and we have been doing uh, series of performances this past week, and we have a bunch of other ones that are upcoming this weekend.
2: So The Beginning of Nothing is uh, going to be performed tomorrow uh, evening at Acre. Is that correct?
0: Tomorrow
9: evening at Acre. Um. But... Than we're doing today as well at the Garfield Park Conservatory, my favorite at four thirty p.m.
2: Is that are you doing it actually inside the conservatory with all yeah. the plants? Yes,
0: no, they're rogue, rogue.
2: outside. Or oh, they're outside in the-, the slushy <laughs> snow. What a beautiful contrast! It sounds fantastic. Yeah,
9: I, I love I love the idea of doing it there. And uh, most of our we always u- utilize the space around us. We don't work with this in any scenography or anything. So we play with the architecture of the places where our art takes us. So I think that it's gonna be really wild with all those plants.
0: Well so le- <laughs> So what Let's
9: is
2: uh, after you, Brian. Okay. Well, what what <laughs> is the beginning of nothing?
10: Um hi, Pablo speaking here. <laughs> so um here is uh what we what we've been doing um for the past six years now that we call Ponsilicreacion. Um it has turned out to be something that now we're calling an investigation on objects and reality. And how those two fields interact with one another so we're very interested in how sane colorful crazy irreverent stuff can actually impact and change the world and i think the beginning of nothing has a lot to do with that you know has a lot to do with um with with starting something with nothing that might be nothing but just um giving it a try
2: Okay, and how does that manifest? You know, what you know, what what would we experience if we come so, to the beginning um, of
9: nothing? We are we call ourselves foam hunters. Um, <laughs> we we work a lot. Um, we we go out at night um, with knives. W- with knives, oh, okay. wearing little clothes, <laughs> and we just search, uh, search garbage dumps and and different streets looking for pieces of foam and whatever we find, uh, we call the meat, and then sometimes we use the skin, which is the fabric. Um, to do other parts, um, but we use these things to create interactive sculptures, and these are sculptures that um, can represent an idea, but also they have mechanisms. They can do a transformation. Um, it's like this alchemical objects, and there's uh, an experimental story telling going on with this objects, and that's, that's how the beginning of Nothing looks like.
10: Yeah. So you'll be disgusted, delighted, and amazed. Um, hopefully.
0: Well, and so I wanted to back up, Brian really brought us right to the show, but tell us a little bit. You started to say that you were, that you've been doing this for six years. Who are you? Where are you from? Why do you do this? Give us a little, give the audience like a little more background on like who is Bonsili. So, um,
9: we are reality hackers. Um, And what that means is that um, we try to find creative possibilities to live uh, within this reality and to alter it. Um, And the the way we do that is that we are object designers. Um, And that has, well, that has led us, that and like a little bit of the show world has led us into puppetry. And a lot of people call while we do puppetry and that's why this festival invited us. Um, And that's actually, how we started um, was working uh, a kind of spectacle that would be like at a certain place, at a certain time, we will do an hour long performance. Uh, and then we would just invite people every week to bring their ideas and their creations. And we would just like whip them up and make some some sculptures to represent them and we would do a show the next week. Uh, so this idea is like of itinerant, improvisation, changing, um, are the things that are, are at the helm of our work. Um, and not only in the in the aspect of looking at it, but also in the aspect of like where we do it and how we do it. Um, we yeah. travel mm-hmm. the world, we hit up different spots. We're not people that are dedicated to present our work in theaters or in any specific kind of venue. Like what we like to do is explore and be curious about uh, these different environments that, that we make ourselves go to.
10: Let me um, give you a little bit of backup on that. Um, we are twin brothers. Um, we were born in New York and at three years old, um, we were taken to Puerto Rico where our mother is from there and our father is from Ecuador. They're both were contemporary dancers in New York and that's how they met. So they brought us to Puerto Rico, um, in the nineties. And that's where we had all of our growing up and I, we totally identify as Puerto Rican and that has been like all of our upbringing. And at some point after, um, finding that really like college was like just not for us somehow somewhere we stumbled upon puppetry and we were like hey this is something fun that we can try out and then we were invited to do a monthly show I mean a weekly show at this venue that's called El Local en Santurce in Puerto Rico it's a very important venue that many projects have started there and after dwelling in puppetry a little bit it just started getting like more crazy and crazy since we never really thought it was gonna be something Now it's something um, that is way bigger than puppetry. Um, We have done several exhibitions, we do installations, we have also done directed music videos, we've done films. So it's re- like, it's, you know, we recently did a 360 um, VR film that uh, one of our show was recorded. Now you're yeah. speaking Brian's language.
2: Uh, I also make some VR films these days.
10: So. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. oh, amazing, I'll make sure to send it over to you. Whenever yeah, we, have yeah, it. yeah um, we
9: did that with a, a, a professor and a group of students from UPenn that, that visited Puerto Rico.
10: Yeah, just just to close that up, just saying that like so now our art has expanded way beyond puppetry. Um and but also we don't mind still being called, you know, like still some people say it's puppets. It's like it's okay.
2: So if people wanted to see uh your art, do you have uh social media feed, yes. website, um, information people? All of drop our down?
10: energies in the internet are all um invested in our Instagram page, Ponsili Creacion. That's P-O-N-C-I-L-I-C-R-E. A C I O N.
2: Boom.
9: And also, if you wanna, if you're a person from Chicago, wanna find out about the shows that are coming up. Basically, we have shows every day. You should go to the website of the Chicago International Puppetry Festival. The specific thing we're doing is called neighborhood tour. So you should look under that. Um,
10: and the show at Acre, it's gonna be our family show. From the festival, but it's not gonna be family. It's gonna we tra- throw the break the breaks out of the window for that one. Okay, that's
2: tomorrow. And,
0: yeah, tomorrow night at seven. Yes, at Acre Projects.
2: F- fantastic. So, um, I, I guess those are some really interesting roots. How did that from that become the particular project that that we see with becoming nothing? Right, you go out, you hunt foam. The beginning. Uh, the what does what this manifest in? What's the scale? What's the size? Like, What are we actually sort of seeing and experiencing um, with these interactive sculptures?
9: Well, the, um, the scale is big and it, it's, it's really cool how we view puppetry um, as in, a, in a different way uh, as most people see it. Um, puppetry uh, is a very, very old uh, art form and is basically, you know, a way to tell a story. Without using the human body, and and that's precisely where we find our first difference with the concept. We like to use the human body as part of it, um, and the thing that links us to it is the, is the objects, the sculptures. Um, but we don't pre- don't we don't want to hide the puppeteer or pretend to hide the puppeteer. The puppeteer, and in many shows, literally becomes the soul of this object. Um, so, it's things that cover the human body. So we we're talking about like five feet, ten feet tall things, um, and also things that. That other things that don't necessarily morph the human body that are that are smaller, but the human body is very present in the action. So you are, you're actually seeing like a human touching an object instead of seeing an object hovering all by itself and that is integrated within the narrative. Um, so
10: I I say you could spend spect- like um there's a lot of mobi- mobility and there's a lot of unknown unknown so there's like a a colorful unknown and then there's like a definitely some kind of um body movement you know we dance we we love to dance just like kind of like our parents dance we still have that thing so it's kind of like we're manipulating these puppets while we're dancing with them and we are like showing these objects and interacting with the crowd just in a, like a, it's a pretty chaotic way.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker. Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Pietrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. <laughs>